If you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 8. And we are uh, going to be continuing our series this morning in John. Uh, and to give you a little bit of backstory as we head in to this passage this morning, uh, a very well-known passage uh, where a woman is brought to Jesus who is caught in adultery. So Jesus has just been at uh, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a huge celebration in the Jewish community. He's in Jerusalem, and he is there celebrating, he's teaching, and as usual, he's drawing a lot of criticism and concern from the religious leaders. So they send, they begin to get really annoyed with him. They've already decided that they want to kill him, that they want to arrest him and sentence him to death. They just had to figure out how to do it. So they send officers to Jesus, and they say, he's speaking blasphemy, he's teaching things that are wrong, go and arrest him so that we can take care of him. And so the officers go, and, and, and even when they get to Jesus, he's just like notoriously slippery. They, like, they can't catch him, they can't get him. I don't mean he's like physically, you know, but he's, he, right when the officers show up, you know, they, they, they say, you know, he's not really saying things that are that bad. He's not really doing anything that seems that wrong. We can't really arrest him. We don't have cause to arrest him. And then on top of that, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to go away pretty soon. I'm not even going to be in your hair anymore. I'm going to be gone. You guys won't have to worry about me. And they go, oh, is he, he's probably just going to go deal with the non-Jewish people now. That's good. They can have him, you know, like we're getting sick of him. Uh, so they come back to the Pharisee. They say, oh, he said he was leaving. He, pretty soon he was going away and that we wouldn't see him again. And so, you know, really, is there much to worry about? Besides, he, he does talk like somebody who has some kind of authority. He doesn't seem that bad. Um, and so the Pharisees just keep getting more and more frustrated with this. They're like, ah, oh, we've got to get him. There's got to be some way that we can get him. They can't stand uh, Jesus because when he comes, he is, uh, he is appealing to these bad, sinful people that have uh, been disinterested in religious people for a really long time. And they know that means that he's probably doing something wrong, and uh, he's communicating something to them that's not right, and that's why they like him so much, right? And so they say, we've got to find a way to trap him. We've got to find a way to get him to say something or do something that is uh, just, just enough that we can now arrest him and go, see everybody, look at what's happened, right? Um, we can all, many of us can relate to this, um, religious people especially, in fact, as a Christian, as a pastor, I have oftentimes, I've gotten really frustrated or even angry with people in the church or near the church who, who teach things or say things, and I just think that is not right, that's like unbiblical, or that's blasphemous, and a lot of times what my frustration leads me to do is it leads me to this point where I don't actually want them to stop what they're doing and just fade into the background. I want them to do it more. In fact, I think I want that person to go on TV and say that dumbest thing they've ever said, and then I want everyone to see just how off they are, how wrong everything that they believe is. That way, everyone will be like, oh, man, like, oh, like, I can't believe I ever liked them. I can't believe I ever thought that. And then the whole time I could sit back and go, well, you know, I knew, but that's fine, right? Uh, th this thing where you actually have an enemy and you want them to do worse things than they've done? Doesn't that seem crazy that we would want that? But we all know what it's like to want that because you want them to get caught. You want them to get in trouble. You want them to cross the line in such a clear way that now everyone sees what you see. This is how these religious leaders feel. They say, Jesus, there's something about him that's wrong. He's speaking blasphemy, but he hasn't done it badly enough yet that everyone's gonna punish him for it. So if only there's some way that we can 
trick him, if only there's some way that we can trap him or catch him in, in a situation where he's going to be forced to say something that's going to incriminate him, and we can arrest him, and we can finally kill him. And that's what they try to do here in John 8. Now, one thing about this passage that is very important, and if you've already turned there, you maybe even have already seen it, is that there is almost universal agreement that this account in Jesus's life was not in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John and was probably not written by John himself to be included in this Gospel, okay? Almost unanimous agreement, but we still read about it in John and we read about it in Luke. Uh, and you go, well, then why is it there? Uh, well, because there is also unanimous agreement that it's an authentic account of something that happened in Jesus' ministry. So we basically have this account that happened, and we know it's real, and we know it was written early enough that it's valid, um, and, and, and yet we don't know exactly where to place it within the Gospels, and so we put it where we most where we can best find a spot for it. And we say this is most likely when he did this or, or the language in which it's written, it was most likely written by this author. Um, and, and that's the best that we can basically do. Now, what's so incredible about that is that the, one of the biggest reasons why we can point to this account and we can say this is true is because it so characterizes the way Jesus was in his ministry. In fact, there's no way that the early church leaders would have written something like this or chosen it because they were very well known for having incredibly rigid what's called sexual ethics, which means when it came to stuff like people committing adultery, they were not okay with it. They did not let it go by. They did not ignore it. They did not let it pass. And so the idea that there's an account where Jesus lets a woman who's caught in adultery kind of walk away, these guys would not have come up with that, believe me. If they were going to come up with something, it would have been a lot different from that. And so what we see in this passage, even though we know that it probably wasn't written by John along with the rest of this letter in the flow that we're following, is we see maybe the best example out of all the Gospels of true Jesus behavior. And it sums up the way Jesus saw the world, saw people, and wanted us to see each other better than almost anything else that we can look at. So if you're in John chapter 8, we're going to read the first couple of verses, and then we'll stop. They went each to his own house. This is after the Feast of Booths. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We'll stop right there. Yes, I spent most of my week researching what was he writing on the ground. And I'm sorry to say we just don't know. So um, you can scribble whatever you think maybe, like a drawing or something, if you get distracted or bored, but I can't say what it was for sure. So these men, these Pharisees, are trying to trap Jesus. And so they have brought him a woman who has committed adultery. It says she's been caught in the act. Now, as a pastor, I have often been put in situations where people will ask me, what is your opinion on this thing? 
or what do you think about this situation right here? And they do that, and I'm aware why they're doing it. They do it because they want a litmus test. They want to know, where do you stand on stuff, right? And so people have continually throughout my ministry asked me questions about things because they want to know, you know, are you like really conservative? Are you really liberal? Do you, do you really care about like people's behavior? Or are you one of those like just grace only people? Do you want to see judgment happen? What do you think about this? And so people will ask questions like that. I was once having, a, having coffee with a guy who was a guy who was discipling. And he asked me, he said, he said, my wife is going to get plastic surgery. He said, what's your opinion on plastic surgery? Do you think that people should get plastic surgery? Do you think it's wrong to get plastic surgery? Is it a sin? I said, no, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of plastic surgery. People should get plastic surgery. I said, I think there needs to be more of it in the world. I grew up in Southern California, and it makes, it makes everything better, right? It makes everyone better. No, I obviously uh, did not say that, but I had been a pastor long enough to know that, uh, you know, a really good pastor just answers a question with a question. And he, and, 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 and he says, you know, are you, are you for plastic surgery or are you against plastic surgery? And I said, why does your wife want to get plastic surgery? And then we ended up having a conversation for like an hour about what was leading his wife to want to get plastic surgery. Uh, but he asked me this question because he wants to know, not just is it morally right. In fact, what I've learned is that most of the time people ask these questions to pastors, they already have their mind made up. They already have their decision. They just want to know if we get to be friends still or not, right? Or if this is going to be a church where they can feel okay about the decision or if they need to be kind of quiet and on the down low about the decision, right? People ask all the time, and these, these, these Pharisees are doing this for a reason. They bring this woman to Jesus, and they are finally going to put him in an impossible situation to get out of. There is no way he is slippery enough to get out of this one because they've brought him a woman who has been caught in the act, that's right, caught in the act of adultery. Adultery is one of the worst sins in the Jewish community. It's like murder than adultery. Because God continually tells his people, you're adulterers to me. He talks about it negatively all the time in his word and says like, to be committed to one person and then to be unfaithful to them is one of the most deceptive and worst things that you can do. And so adultery carried with it a huge punishment. But it was also just considered to be one of the worst sins that a person could commit. It destroyed families, it destroyed society, it destroyed the world people committing adultery. So they bring him a woman who has been caught. There's no question about whether or not she's committed adultery. And in order to bring someone with that level of confidence, there had to actually be witnesses because the penalty for adultery is often death like they're asking for here. And so in order to sentence someone to something as serious as death, there has to be witnesses witnessing the adultery and you think, well, that's kind of strange. Yes, it is. So these men are coming to Jesus, these Pharisees saying to him, we witnessed this woman committing adultery, and here she is, and we can attest to it. Or they had somebody with them who could say, I witnessed it, and I saw it, and I attest to it. And you might be wondering at this point, why aren't they bringing two people? Well, you know, apparently they walked in and uh, were so shocked and appalled uh, that the man had an opportunity to get away without being recognized, and now we'll never know who he is. That's pretty much what happened most of the time. 
when people in that culture were caught committing adultery was, yeah, we don't remember who the guy was, we don't really know that much of it, but we do know who the woman is, and here she is, and she's guilty. We know because we saw her. The penalty is death, and so here's why it's an impossible situation for Jesus. Because if he ignores this woman's sin, then they'll know. Okay, see, he isn't really one of us. He doesn't really care about holiness. He doesn't really care about God's word, about the law. He doesn't care about it. And you think, and, and then they go, but, he, you know, he's the friend of sinners, right? That's what they call him. They, they say that about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say that about himself. They say that about him. They say he hangs out with sinners. They love him. They think he's the best. Why do they think he's the best? Why do sinners think that anybody's the best? Well, it must be because he doesn't care what they do. He doesn't care how they live. He doesn't care about their lives. He doesn't care about good and evil and bad and right and wrong. So if he ignores her sin, which is exactly what they're all going to expect him to do, and they'll all be happy with him, then we will know that he's not really one of us and he's not really holy. And we can arrest him. We can call him out for blasphemy, for teaching things that are wrong. But if he casts the first stone, if he comes down on this woman's sin and judges her as he should do, according to the law, like we would, then what are all those sinful people going to think when they see that? They're going to go, wait a second, we thought Jesus was a cool guy, right? And they're going to take off. They're going to say, oh, he is just like one of them. Oh, he does just care about right and wrong. Oh, he's willing to punish a person for something like adultery. So either way, however Jesus responds, one group of people is disappointed, and this whole thing that he's creating around himself just goes away, because in the end, he's just like the person that's come along a million other times. He's either like every other religious leader, or he's like every other heretic who got a group of people to follow him, because they only taught half the rules, and people like that better. To be caught in adultery meant that these men had to have witnessed it, and so they bring this woman to him saying, we have witnessed this thing, you must decide what to do with her. And so here's Jesus' response. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus' response to them, he did it, guys, he did it. He found a way. Jesus finds a way. He says, you be the first one to throw the first stone. The sinless person must throw the first stone. He doesn't say the law is wrong. He doesn't say the punishment is too extreme. He simply says, fine. Then let whichever one of you is sinful or is sinless throw the first stone. Whichever one of you is perfect and righteous, good. You can be the judge. You can be the punisher. You throw the first stone. You see, what they were expecting was that he would throw the first stone, that, that he would do something. Because you see, the only way that these men could have witnessed something like this, and this often happened in this culture, was if they framed this woman. And people would oftentimes do this. Because it was so impossible to catch someone in the act of adultery, to convict them of adultery, then people would set other people up. They would, they would, they would find out when it was going to happen, or they would even try to set up circumstances in which it might happen, and then they would walk in at the most inconvenient time. Oh, look, here we are, a bunch of witnesses. We caught you. Usually the guy ran away again 
crazy how fast these guys are. And then the woman, they bring the woman up to the Jewish leaders and they punish her. Jesus knew that these men had compromised. He knew they had done something wrong in all of this. And we hear that. We're like, that's terrible, right? That's horrible. We'll never do anything like that. We'll never be that bad, right? Now you imagine these men gather around saying, there has got to be some way that we can stop this from happening, what Jesus is doing. You see, they look at Jesus and they say, this man is a heretic He is blaspheming. He is saying things about our God that we believe are wrong. He is challenging everything about our way of life and living. And this is all that we do is think about this religion. How far are we willing to go to make sure that his ministry can end, that he can lead no more people astray, that he can stop teaching things that are wrong and stop ruining people's lives with his bad theology and stop making sinners think that they don't have to. What, how far are we, the religious leaders, willing to go? And it's only a matter of time until they say, well, if we can just set up this situation while Jesus is still here in our midst, we can bring him a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. There's no way that he'll be able to get out of that. You see, to them, the end justified the means. To them, uh, the evil of what Jesus was doing, the wrongness, was so important that they could themselves sin. And why could they sin? Because it's not that big of a deal when they sin. Because they're not really that bad of people. They're not like adulterers, right? They're not like this, this woman. They're not like these people that Jesus is spending all of his time with who are really the problem in the world and really the problem with society. The, problem, the point that Jesus is making here is that not that this woman is innocent. He never says she's innocent, ever. The point that he's making is that if these men have made themselves judge, so it means they have to bring about the solution. These these men have to be the ones to throw the stones. You see, at this time, the only person that could execute someone, that could bring judgment to someone, was themselves, they had to be innocent, right? If a judge in a case was found to be guilty of something, if they were found to be immoral, if they were found to be deceptive or lying, if their reputation was in a question, then they would be removed from a case, and they would bring in a judge or someone to bring about justice who could be trusted. So what Jesus said to these men was, fine, then it'll be on you. You just have to be perfect enough to be able to throw the first stone to which they all walk away, sad, eventually, because they know we've disqualified ourselves even from doing that. The problem with the Pharisees isn't just the fact that they have, in this one instance, this one time, set this woman up. The problem with the Pharisees is that they are sinful. And the problem is that they have a bias against some sins versus others. You see, in their world, there's nothing worse than an adulterous woman. There's nothing worse than that. Who who would ever view things any differently? So they think if we bring before Jesus the worst kind of person, then he will have no doubt but to deal with them and the sin in their life. But the problem is, that's not true. That there's nothing worse in the world than an adulterous woman. That it's the worst thing that you can find. You see, they have their own bias. They have their own opinions. They have their own idea of what's worse some things versus others. They have the things that they minimize that aren't that big of a deal, and then the things that are major. And Jesus doesn't see things that way because things aren't really that way. We are so good at 
at rating sin, at rating people, at deciding some are okay, some are really horrible, and if enough of us agree that that's the way it should be, then we get into the mistake of thinking that God thinks this way too, that the kingdom of God works that way even though it doesn't. These guys have elevated one sin over another. They built a whole cultural understanding of things on that. And so they're totally deceived. People couldn't understand how Jesus could be so friendly towards sinner, toward the the dregs of society, because it just doesn't make sense that you could act this way. You could be so compassionate towards these people, but you could still care about holiness, about being good. My son goes to school every day, and I find myself caring about who he spends his time with because my son's impressionable. And so I, so, I, so I think about that constantly. What I want for him is to be a light to other students, but I also don't want that to come at the cost of some bad beliefs or some bad habits rubbing off on him. I'm sure I'm the only parent who's ever worried about this. So I think... Well, better safe than sorry, right? If I think someone's a bad influence, if I think an environment's negative, if I think that he's starting to be impressed upon more than he's impressing upon others, then uh, better safe than sorry, right? I don't want him in that situation because it, it, it really does only really make sense to us that you're either ultimately at the end of the day living for holiness, purity, or you're, you're living just because you want to be gracious and nice to other people. You want no one to be wrong. You want everyone to be happy and to get along. And you don't want to have to deal with the judgment that comes with that stuff. It's one or the other. This is why everyone, these religious leaders, were so furious at Jesus. Because they went, it's not new, this idea, that if there are religious people who are trying to live a good life, that all the sinful people aren't going to like them. Everyone knows that's how it works. We've accepted it. We've gotten used to it. You come on the scene and you're like, well, they seem to like me quite a bit. Well, that means that you must not be trying to do this thing that you should be doing. There's no way that you could be living as as holy lives as us and these people would still like you. So you must be telling them things that aren't true. Or there's no way that you're really actually a friend to these people. Maybe you really don't like them. Maybe you're trying to trick them. Maybe you're trying to do this for some other reason. Because really in the end, you know that we're right and that you should be living over here with this group of people. For centuries, people have felt like living a holy life forces them to be separated from those who are living sinful lives. If someone's going to come to God, it's because they have to run face first into a brick wall that's painful, and they have to realize that, like, uh, yeah, I thought these religious people were my enemy until I could see God. There's no way that I could see them as a friend. The idea of a friend of sinners isn't real. When we even think about the idea of sin, we're confronted with this reality. We read about uh, in Romans where Paul is making the argument for the gospel itself. The argument for the gospel begins with, well, after creation, it begins with sin. The sin that has separated us from God. And here's how he explains it. Many of us know this passage well. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Now, if you've read this passage, if you know this passage, you're familiar with it, it might be because at some point in your life, someone has said to you, oh yeah, well then show me where it says in the Bible that it's wrong for someone to live a homosexual lifestyle and call themselves a Christian. Show me where it's wrong for someone to believe that or to do that. You show me some kind of proof that that's not a part of who someone is, that that's not a part of their identity, and and you maybe point to that, and you'd say, there, right there, it says in Romans, that's sin. In fact, when we read that and we see it in Romans, we think, yes, right? If someone chooses to live this way, if someone chooses to openly acknowledge that this is okay, then of course it leads to the kind of destruction that we see even in the world around us. Could there be anything worse? Well, you know, a lot of times we're not very good at reading what comes after this, where Paul lists out all the other stuff. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Oh, that's everybody there. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So you read that list, you're like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know those things are wrong. I'm, there's nothing new there. Oh, so he just said, so they know that these things are against God's decree, God's decree, and then they teach other people to do them. Well, I don't teach people to do that stuff, right? That's, that's <laughs> no, I'm not there, right? Well, you look at some of these words, you, you, you look at what these words actually mean, words that we may not always use in our everyday language. Covetousness, a strong desire to acquire more and more personal possessions, material possessions, or to possess more things than the other. That's probably nobody here, right? I know I haven't dealt with that before. A strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, or to possess more things than the other. That is covetousness. Envy, a grudging regard for the advantages seen to be enjoyed by others. When someone else does well, you don't feel good for them. You feel envy. Why? Why would I feel sad for someone whose life is going well, who has a lot, who has more than I do, more than I could ever hope to have, circumstances that I could never hope to experience? Strife is conflict resulting from rivalry or discord. So if you have an enemy, a rivalry, Someone that you disagree with, whether people know about this or not, whether they know about it or not. Strife is any conflict that comes from that. It is you living in a state of conflict from another person. Slanderer, to speak ill of another person or to insult them to others. To say anything ill of another person, badly of another person, either to other people behind their back or to that person themselves. Anything is slander. To be insolent is mistreatment of others rooted in superiority, which is caused by pride. Chances are, if somebody said, are you an insolent person? You'd be like, I don't know. Isn't that like, no, I'm not. That doesn't sound like a word that would describe me. Because if you take this backwards, pride causes superiority, which leads to mistreating other people, right? Being prideful, thinking that you're better than some other person or group of people, and then treating them badly because of it. That's insolence. Boastful, 
a trait that only God can exhibit because he is a creator and redeemer. This is the definition of the Hebrew, uh, or the Greek word that they use. Boastful is a trait that only God can exhibit because he is a creator and redeemer. In the Jewish culture, this was what, when they talk about being boastful and boasting, it's literally something that only God gets to do. He's the only one that's got anything to boast about. And so to be boastful is to like be deceived about who we are and what we have and to be proud of it. To be foolish is unwilling to use one's mental facilities, faculties in order to understand. You're unwilling to use what you have been given to understand. It doesn't mean you can't understand. It doesn't mean you're incapable of understanding. It means you're unwilling to understand something. Do you know anyone like that? Somebody who's unwilling to understand something that they could understand? But not you, right? Faithless not bound by any covenant or agreement. In a world in which there is no greater life than one that is completely un, uh, un, unhindered, that is completely not tied to anything, that is not restricted by anything, but where we are completely free to be ourselves independent of anyone else and anything else, not to be bound by any covenant or any agreement is to live a faithless life. Heartless, lacking love and affection for close friends and family. And to be ruthless is simply to have a lack of mercy. All of these things are sin. All of these things are wrong. And he says that not only do people, sinners, do these things, but they know they're wrong and they still do them. And then to make it one step, to take it one step further, they teach other people, they tell other people it's okay to do these things. So, so if you're in a group of people and they all are slandering type people, then you begin to accept that slander is, I mean, yes, it says it's wrong, but we all do it. It's a normal part of life. It's a normal part of being a person. And so really, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, we communicate to other people, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone does it. And we teach others, we tell other people that the very sins that we're guilty of are not that bad. In fact, we're good at surrounding ourselves with groups of people, echo chambers sometimes, that agree with us on what sins are really bad and which ones are just a normal part of life, just a normal part of the way things are, or things that happen in us because of other people, right? Because of the way other people treat us or the way other people live. And if you get enough people together to agree with one way of thinking, then all of a sudden these things that, yeah, I mean, we know they're kind of wrong, but even if you start with the very first one on the list, the covetousness, if you live around enough people that want stuff, then it's okay to want stuff. If you're the only one that wants stuff, then it stands out quite a bit more. This is how the Bible describes sin. And so when Jesus says to these men, fine, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Their response is first to be convicted because they set this woman up. They had a part in this very sin. But then it says that the older men walk away before the younger men because as they look back at their life, the older men have a lot more life to look back on. And it's, it doesn't take much time for them to go, yeah, I've seen the bad decisions I've made. I've seen the wreckage that I've caused. I've seen the, the hurt and the consequences from what I've done. And my long life has shown me that I am not perfect. 
And then it says, of course, the young men took longer, right? So the old men walked away first. I like to imagine that they like grabbed a young guy and dragged him back, you know, like, no, believe me, just come on, you know. Well, hold on, I'm still trying to think. Have I not said, no, you have, you know. This is, uh, because he's not just talking about this one instance. He's talking about sin in the lives of people. And so as these people are convicted and they walk away, even the young men who at first are arrogant enough to still think that maybe they're not that bad, we, we realize something about ourselves, and that is that we are like these men. We are like these religious leaders. We are like these Pharisees that bring this woman to Jesus. Most of us haven't committed adultery. Most of us have not tried to stone a sinner, at least not in the way that this woman had committed it, in the way that these men tried to punish this woman with death. So we walk away pretty unscathed by this, but then if we do that, we miss what Jesus is saying, which is that the penalty of sin, it is death. So what Jesus is saying to these men is, okay, if we're really going to be as devout as you guys want to be, then which one of you is going to go first? Righteous people have a tendency uh, to view themselves this way, to say, religious people, sorry, not righteous, Religious people have a tendency to view themselves this way, to think, if I'm religious, then it means that I'm supposed to be a judge. I'm supposed to help keep things in line. I'm supposed to represent the line and show people what it is, and by doing that, I bring into the world uh, this very important need. But the problem is that we're not very good judges because, first of all, we're guilty, And second of all, we we have this tendency to expect grace for ourselves but not want to offer it for other people. Religious people have a tendency to do this, to to think, God, I mean, I'm a a pretty good person, okay? I'm I'm trying, I'm working on it, I'm trying to figure things out on the inside. So if you could give me some grace here, if you could give me some mercy here, I think that you'll see that you want me to keep going. You, you You want more people like me out there. But this person over here, who, who isn't like me, they're not as good as me, they're not trying like I am, they're not thinking like I am, they're not praying like I am, they're not, I don't know, they're just not like me. They need judgment, God. They need death. They need punishment. God, they're never going to learn unless they just run straight into that brick wall, unless they hit rock bottom. So God, what they need is judgment. Would you use me for that, God? Right? I, I'll take up, I'll take up the mantle that you've given me, reluctantly, and I will judge God, and I will punish God, because I see that that's what you want from me. I mean, grace for me, you know, grace for me, because in the end, we still believe that there really are good people. Really, there's good people, and those people should be forgiven. Our friends are good people. Our communities are maybe good people. Our church, good people. So there should be forgiveness here, But there's also bad people, and they need judgment. And Jesus breaks the very bad news to them by saying, you are are just as bad as they are. And so we are not a judge, Jesus says. He says, you are guilty. You don't get to judge because you're guilty. So when you bring something to me and you expect judgment, then what I'm going to bring right back to you is guilt. I'm going to bring conviction. I'm going to remind you that you are no judge and that that's not how you're going to win this. But what we are then is we are called to be what Jesus was. Because we read this, Jesus stood up then and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more.
You see, Jesus can judge her. He has every right to be contemptuous towards her and to condemn her. But what does he do instead? Is he says, go and sin no more. He is a friend of sinners. Why is he a friend of sinners? Because he wants good for them. He wants even the most sinful person to ultimately be healed, to ultimately not be a sinful person. And when we're honest, most of the time that we see sinful people and we want judgment for them, it's because we don't want them to be healed and we don't want them to be better and we don't want the sin to stop in their life. We just want them to go away. The world expects us to judge others, but the way of the Christian is different. The way of the Christian is the way of forbearance. And because the way of forbearance is countercultural and counterintuitive, it must be learned. It is countercultural to forgive. Judgment is what everyone does. Everyone says, find a bad group and judge them. And it is counterintuitive to us. You can't be born with it, with this compassion that we're called to have. You can't be born with it, and you cannot uh, just develop it naturally. You have to actually say, this will not feel natural to me. But the way I'm called to view people and to live is with forbearance. And so we are called to be a friend. Because that's what Jesus was. He was a friend to sinners. We are called to be a friend. My son, a couple of, about a month ago, my son started having bad days at school. He started coming home and we found out that he was getting in trouble. He's in first grade. He was getting sent out of his classroom. He was yelling at his teacher. He was throwing tantrums in the classroom. He was running out of the classroom and they had to go find him. He kept having to go to Mrs. Gilmore's room, which is where kids go when they need to take a break and they need to calm down. And we kept getting reports of this day after day after day for weeks. And we were really, we've been worried. I mean, this is like not something that he had done before. This is not at all, you know, who he is, right? And this is, uh, maybe you know him, you're like, no, that's who he is. And, and this is not the way he had been before. And, 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 and in this moment that we're confronted with this behavior that is destructive and not good, that it gets in the way of everything going on in his classroom, we get to the point to where its behavior is so bad that we have to take away his field trip that he was supposed to go on with his class. They're going to, they were going to the zoo. And I was supposed to be the chaperone. And they just got red pandas. And I want to see them. And I had to make the decision and tell him, buddy, you can't go to the zoo tomorrow. And it broke our heart. I I have never been able to relate to my son more than that moment because I got so much stuff taken away from me when I was a kid. And I remember what it felt like, the powerlessness of knowing it's too late. There's nothing I can do now. I've lost it. The realization of just how bad you were being a moment too late. But because I remember what it was like to be that person, to spend much of my childhood getting things taken away, being a bad kid, uh, being the person who people just needed to kind of get rid of at some point from their classroom. I, rather than seeing him as someone who needed to just be broken down and, and, and cast off or convicted or judged or punished, I instead see him as a friend. I say, I remember what it's like to be in the place that you're in right now. 
We are called not to be judges, but to be a friend of sinners, but to come alongside them and say, I want something better for you. And what is it that we want for them that is better is to be healed. The other thing that was amazing to me was that every day his teacher, Mrs. Burke, would come and talk with us and every day try to figure out how he could have a better day tomorrow. Uh, his, uh, Mrs. Gilmore would talk to us every day and we would talk about just what can we think of so that he could have a better day tomorrow. No one made a decision about him that said, you know what, what we need to do here, what our job is here as educators is to sift out kids like him because they get in the way of things for everyone else. And so we want to focus on what we're doing here and get him out of the way so we just need you to deal with him. But instead, it was how can we help him have a good day. I was talking with Darlene White, who was a teacher and, uh, in the first service, and she said when she started her teaching career, she was a, a judger and a punisher. And her principal liked her because she got results. Said kids listen to her. But she said by the end of her time teaching when she retired, she had become a completely different kind of teacher, a completely different kind of person. She had changed from being one to being the other. And she said that it was so rewarding to see what happened in the lives of these kids when that changed. You see, uh, when he, uh, my birthday was uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I talk about it in every sermon. Obviously, my birthday was a couple weeks ago. And uh, I, I'm, I've learned, though, I need to talk about it leading up to my birthday because it doesn't work the other way. Um, <laughs> My birthday was a couple weeks ago. I told Tegan, I, I, he, had, he had had bad days. It was, he had missed the, the zoo field trip, and then we had the weekend. And so on Monday, my birthday, I said, all I want, all I want for my birthday is um, for you to have a good day at school. And he sent me a message after school, and it said, like, Dad, I was so good today. I was really good. I had a great day. And it was the first really good day that he had had. And then the next day, we talked about it, and I walked him to school, and I said, let's have one more good day. And he, and he had a really good day. And every day since then, he's had a good day. And every day, there have been these people saying to him, we want you We want you to have a good day. We want you to do better. We don't want judgment and condemnation. We want healing because that's what Jesus came to bring. Jesus came able to be the one person who could judge, but he instead chose to be the one person who could bring healing to all these people. And because he loves all of us, he points the finger right at us and says, yeah, you too. So we remember what it's like to be in that position. For some of us, it seems impossible to remember back to a time when we were the sinner. When, when, when we were the one blowing it and messing up. Can we remember enough to be able to be a friend to someone else rather than to see them as an opponent or an enemy who needs nothing but judgment and punishment so they can learn that way? And can we be somebody who is a friend to sinners, like Jesus was? Somebody who actually wants healing in people's lives, like Jesus did with this woman. He said to her, he didn't say go away, he said go away and sin no more. This woman was a serial adulterer. There's no way they could have set her up unless they knew that about her. This woman probably had a life of doing this very thing. And yet Jesus' response to her is both to forgive her and then to say, go and sin no more. Because he knows what life is. He wants healing for her. Can we do that too? Let's pray. Father, as we, as we take a moment and we enter into communion this morning, I pray that where you would direct our hearts right now is to be reminded of the fact 
that's um, we we can't do anything without you and your forgiveness and your sacrifice. I pray that you would convict those of us who are prone to judgment, prone to want punishment, prone to want to see uh, suffering happen to others. I pray that you would take away from us the blinders that cause us to minimize our own sin and, and vilify other people, God. We pray that this church would be a place of friends and of healers, Lord, not a place of judgmental people who bring punishment, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we know that you forgive those who murder. You forgive those who commit adultery. We know that because you forgave the king, David himself. And he said, he prayed to you, cried out to you in Psalm 51, asking you to uh, create in him a clean heart, Lord. His response to seeing his sin was to come to you and ask for a clean heart. Father, that's what we do here. We thank you that when you could have judged us, that instead you had compassion on us, that when you could have shown contempt for us, that you showed love, and that because of that, we can have a clean heart. Please, God, when you give us that heart, give us a heart that loves others in the same way that you love us, Lord, that doesn't look to condemn, but to have compassion. Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.